You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am, on digital and online, 3CR Radical Radio. Good morning, 3CR. We'd like to acknowledge that we're broadcasting today from the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to elders past and present and acknowledge that the colonial project is ongoing. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning and welcome to 3CR Breakfast. Good morning. How have you been, Jacob? Oh, it's it's been wonderful. Um Still adjusting to being awake at this hour, yeah, if I'm honest. Definitely is. Um I've been here coming in for almost a month now, but like I'm still not used to it. I'm always so tired in the morning. <laughs> I know. I feel like Generation Z in particular, just this hour, um, it's not for us. <laughs> definitely. <laughs> but I'm be. I'm happy to be here. Um back in the chair for Today, um, joined by you. I'm very excited for you to be here. Honestly, I was kind of nervous if I was going to be here alone again <laughs> last week. No, yeah. never, never. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, we've got a really exciting show coming up. We've sort of jam-packed it with um, really interesting guests and topics. And I know you've got a really cool interview at uh, 10 past 7 today. Yeah, we've got a lot actually this morning. Um, first up, we will be speaking to Tim Wright, the Treaty Coordinator of International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, um, also known as ICANN, discussing about the signage of the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons at the recent United Nations General Assembly. And what happens now for Australia, who has yet to sign the treaty? Mm. And what about yours? What's coming up? Yeah, well, I am speaking with um, Professor Sharon Lewin, who is the director of the Doherty uh, Institute and an expert on infectious diseases. So you may have heard um, some good news about COVID-19, um, which seems to be the, the first time we've uh, sort of felt a glimmer of hope um, in the last two years. But basically, the World Health Organization said that the end of COVID was in sight, um, and they've released six policy briefs outlining uh, the path forwards to ensuring that the COVID pandemic um, is over. So that's really exciting news, and we're going to be unpacking a bit about what that means um, at 7.30. And then at 7... 50, I believe, um, we'll be speaking with independent writer and political commentator Joel Jenkins about a different issue, this one being something we call the duopoly, so all about um, how Liberal and Labour kind of work together um, in different ways in the Parliament, for better or for worse. Um, so that should be a really interesting chat about how the new government's been performing over the past uh, four months. And then I think that brings us to your final segment at 10 past 8. Yes, so um, to wrap up the show for the day, we will lastly look at um, speaking to Michelle Fahi, who 
uh, is an investigative journalist on Australian armed weapons industry and looking at the close connections they have with the government. We'll also be highlighting um, the militarization in Australia and discussing about the blanket secrecy and how this links with anti-corruption measures that the government wants to put. It's a very interesting topic. I'm looking forward to listening to that again. Mm. And uh, I think this comes um, as a part of our militarization um, special that we're doing. So if you don't already know, um, over the next week and a half, all of our breakfast shows are going to be doing segments on militarism or militarization. (laughs) Yes. And then also there will be an expo from the Disrupt Land Forces happening from this Saturday onwards, actually, in Midgin, Brisbane. Fantastic. More details on that to come. Grace, you've been doing this for about a month now, I think you said? Yes, I started about a month now. And um, But to be honest, I only, only came in to actually start um, being part of the show and speaking like about three weeks ago. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Wow. So this is your, your third week on. Yeah. This oh my is goodness. my third week. <laughs> <laughs> Still nervous as usual, but um, you hopefully. You sound great. You sound great. And <laughs> what's you. been um, the highlight for you over the last two and a bit weeks? I think the best part is just, um, obviously getting up in the morning <laughs> and then, um, being able to come here and listen to, the beautiful like um, stories and things that people want to share, even though it's so early in the morning, but you know, everyone uh, just wants to get up as soon as possible and share what they want to share to the world. And I think that's the best part about the show right now for me. And yeah, just to- the topics that I've been listening are just so interesting and just something that I've never really got to know from the mainstream media. But and then yeah, it's just it's just really lovely to be here. And that I think that's just one of the best highlights for me. Yeah. Yeah, of course. I think that's the the magic of 3CR, right? You hear about so many different uh, topics and issues that you just don't get to hear about um, in a lot of mainstream media outlets. So, um, yeah, so thanks, everyone, for tuning in today, um, whether you're listening in online uh, or on your dial at 8.55 a.m. We'll be right back um, after this song. This one's called Paying My Jews by Duncan Graham. Grasping for your jeans I'm buckled I'm a Protestant Jew boy Undergrad 1983 Am I the first to discover What's beneath the young man's curve Then shiny trembling like me I've got a rocket you know it And just looking at you Golden threads run through your hair It sends me
bless a stupid jackson, the best in auto washroom hats. Bless all the cautious kids who lick the edges of the plate. Bless all the jet boys and all the smooth fauntleroys, the avatars of fake news and the spies. Sometimes it means a little You're listening to TreeCR Breakfast, and that was Paying My Dues by Duncan Graham. And now we move on to our first part of the show, where I'll be speaking to Tim Wright, the Treaty Coordinator at International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, also stand for ICANN, discussing another five countries that have signed the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons recently at the United Nations General, General Assembly. And what happens now for Australia? Who has yet to participate in signing the treaty? Those who have signed means they are prohibited to use, possess, nor even develop nuclear weapons. Now speaking to Tim Wright at ICANN. Good morning, Tim. How are you? Morning, Greg. Very well, thank you. So, good, good. Um, so at least another five countries have signed a treaty on the prohibition of the nuclear weapons at the United Nations General Assembly. Currently, what's the current numbers of uh, signatories and how many ratifications do we have so far? So there are 91 countries that have signed the treaty and of those, 68 countries have ratified it. So ratifying it means that they're now legally bound by the treaty. 
I see it. And then as the numbers of the signatories um, grow, what would this mean for the steps towards universal adoption of the treaty on banning yeah. nuclear weapons? So this, this, is a, this is a treaty that was uh, adopted five years ago in 2017. And the support for the treaty has continued to grow over the past five years. And as you said, we had another five signatures as well as two more ratifications just last week. Um, so we're seeing this momentum, um, and that momentum is uh, against the backdrop of the heightened risk of nuclear weapon use uh, in the context of the war in Ukraine. Uh, I think that the international community is deeply concerned um, that these weapons will be used again, and so the growing support for the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons is really our best hope of building a strong norm against nuclear use, against threats of use, um, and putting pressure on the nine nuclear armed states to get rid of their nuclear weapons completely. That's amazing. And then um, I remember it as I was looking at to understanding about this treaty. If there if we already reached um, fifty ratifications, this would hold the countries legally binded. And so is this a way to hold the countries accountable in case if they actually go against the treaty? Yeah, so the treaty reached that threshold in 2020 and entered into force uh, early last year. Um, so it is a legally binding treaty now for those countries that have joined it. Um, but we hope that it will have an impact even on the countries that are refusing to join it. Uh, by stigmatising their behaviour, by making it harder for them to uh, continue possessing nuclear weapons. Um, and I think that the pre-existing international legal framework around nuclear weapons did, to some extent, legitimise nuclear weapons for uh, a certain group of countries, namely um, the permanent five members of the Security Council, the United States, Russia, France, China and the United Kingdom, this newer treaty really says that nuclear weapons are unacceptable for all countries. Um, there are no right hands for these weapons um, and um, they don't keep the peace, quite the, quite the opposite. They uh, undermine every country's uh, security. They threaten the very survival of humanity. I see. And then... Um Australia is actually one of the countries that have yet to sign the treaty, actually. And so what's going to happen for for our nation? And are we seeing any progress towards the possibility for us to sign the treaty? Yes, we are seeing some progress. So when the treaty was adopted, uh, Australia decided not to be part of the negotiation. This was under the previous government. Uh, it decided not to sign the treaty, and it has registered its opposition to the treaty for the past five years, um, and that's on the basis that um, the Australian uh, position is that US nuclear weapons keep Australia safe, and therefore there shouldn't be a general prohibition on nuclear weapons. Uh, it's unclear, and I certainly hope that that position won't continue uh, under the, the current government. Um, the current government hasn't put forward a clear position yet. Um, but it did send an observer to the first meeting of states' parties to the treaty, which was held in Vienna earlier this year. So that is a promising sign. And the Labor Party in 2018 adopted a policy saying that it will sign and ratify the treaty 
uh, in government. Uh, so that policy was, in fact, the initiative of Anthony Albanese. That was before he was the leader of the Labor Party. He put this forward at the National Conference of the Party uh, in Adelaide in 2018, mm-hmm. and the party agreed to that. There was some resistance within the party from the right wing of the party, um, but the overwhelming majority of members of the Parliamentary Labor Party, as well as the Labor-affiliated unions, supported this proposal that Labor government would sign and ratify the treaty. So we very much uh, hope and expect that they'll follow through with that commitment. That's, I see. Um, let's hope Australia will sign the treaty soon, even though the signs are still a bit unclear. Well, that was actually all my questions for you, Tim. Um, thank you so much for coming in and listening. I'm sorry. And ha- having a chat with us. Thank you so much, Tim. My pleasure, Greg. Yes. Thank you. Thank Bye. you. Bye. That was Tim. That was me speaking with Tim Wright, the treaty coordinator at International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, also stand for ICANN, discussing about the recent signage of the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons recently at the United Nations General Assembly by five other countries. And of course, yes, Australia has yet to sign a treaty, but let's hope um, the there will be some good news soon on this. To understand more about the treaty and the impacts of nuclear weapons, you can head on to um, ICANN's website at icanw.org. So now let's head on to a song. It's called Two-Faced by Sincerely Grizzly. See you. 
the single most important film on the Aboriginal political struggle in the last 50 years. Ningla Anna is the inside story of the Aboriginal Tent Embassy, a gripping first-hand account of an iconic protest action and the young radicals who took control and demanded justice. Rediscover this iconic documentary and a momentous period for First Nations activism in this brand new restoration. Screening Cinema Nova, Carlton, from Friday the 30th of September to Sunday the 2nd of October. A 3CR supporter. Don't you cry 
morning you're on 3cr breakfast joined by myself jacob and grace um thanks for joining us today that last song was called hush now babies um and it was featuring emma Donov um and archie roach and the song before that one was two face by sincerely grizzly Turning the dial a bit now, we're going to be speaking on COVID-19 and public health. Um, so if you haven't heard, the Director General of the World Health Organization, Dr. Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus, declared last fortnight that the end of COVID-19 was in sight after the leading health body declared that weekly COVID deaths had been the lowest since March 2020. However, there's still a fair way to go before the pandemic is over. Uh, the World Health Organization has outlined six key policy briefs moving forwards, uh, including COVID-19 testing, clinical management, reaching vaccination targets, managing infection and control in healthcare settings, building trust with communities and curbing the spread of misinformation. So joining us now to discuss the future of COVID-19 is Professor Sharon Lewin, who is the director of the Doherty Institute and an infectious disease expert. Uh, Sharon, good morning and thanks for coming on 3CR. Oh, good morning and pleasure to be here. So I think we were all a bit relieved to hear some good news uh, about COVID-19, especially after the last two years here in Victoria. As someone who lives and breathes public health, how did you feel um, hearing that announcement last fortnight? Yeah, I must say I felt the same way um, and, of course, have seen uh, this coming as we've seen um, numbers of infections drop, high vaccination rates or what we call hybrid immunity, meaning people that have had past infection vaccination or both, um, all giving us greater protection against COVID-19. I think the only caveat, I don't mean to be pessimistic at all because I'm inherently an optimist, (laughs) is that COVID-19 has still got a lot of um, unknowns for us. And so I think we should be optimistic about um, seeing things turn around, but still be prepared that... uh, COVID could surprise us, as it has continued to do over the last two years. Absolutely. So I'm, I'm hearing some cautious uh, optimism. Am I right there? Oh, yeah, yeah. I think things are definitely heading in the right direction. Um, what we do see, we, it's very, very clear COVID-19 cycle, meaning you have waves of infections at different times, which we don't really fully understand whether the season plays a role, but not entirely. Um, so, but COVID's with us and um, COVID's not going to go away and therefore there may well be unexpected terms in the future and we still need to be prepared for that. Mm, absolutely. And I think speaking on um, COVID going away, a lot of people have been talking about, you know, wanting it to to leave. Um, What exactly do you think it means for the pandemic to end? 
Well, um, a pandemic is defined by a new infectious diseases with you know ongoing human-to-human transmission in multiple continents, and um, it, that is still continuing. However, it is going to cause much, much less illness and death, and that's really what we're seeing at the moment. We're still seeing, and we will continue to see transmission because our vaccines are very good at preventing disease, but with the newer variants are less effective at preventing transmission. So I think we are in a phase now that we well and truly will be living with COVID. We do live with other human coronaviruses, sort of relatives of COVID, that our immune systems have adapted to living with, meaning they cause a cough and a sniffle and don't make you too sick. Um, and that's really where we're heading with COVID. Not eliminating it, but it reaching a point where we're living much more sustainably with COVID, I guess, meaning that it's causing less disease and death, which is really the most important thing. Mm. And the, the World Health Organization was, was quite cautious to, to say that there's still quite a bit of a way to go before we can, you know, officially declare a, a pandemic over. There were still about 11,000 deaths, um, last fortnight. What do you think are some of the challenges moving forwards, uh, in managing COVID both in Australia, but also worldwide? Well, I think first of all, in Australia, it's managing, um, and protecting vulnerable people, so the elderly, people who are immunosuppressed, are going to have and do have less effective vaccine responses and are more at risk of disease. Now, we certainly have things to help those people. Um, still, people at risk or vulnerable are encouraged to wear masks mask when they're out. They should have an antiviral plan, meaning they've discussed with their doctor what they will do should they get covid whether they're eligible for antivirals and how to access them quickly. That's probably the most important thing for someone that's vulnerable. And there also are additional ways to protect from COVID with um, infusions. Now, we're lucky in Australia because we have access to all of those things. Those um, interventions, particularly antivirals and infusions of antibodies, aren't available in, in nearly in most low-income and middle-income countries. We've also got very high rates of first and second dose vaccination, pretty good on the third dose, room to move on the fourth dose in Australia, while other countries are nowhere near that level of vaccination. So we're still seeing pretty significant inequity across the world um, with countries facing different risks. But particularly about Australia, I think we've got lots of tools now in the toolbox, and I'm hoping that over the coming year we see some of those really life-saving interventions like antivirals also available in low- and middle-income countries. Mm, and speaking of which, do you think Australia has an obligation to, to step up and do more in ensuring that every country has access to vaccines and these antiviral medications that you just described? Yeah, of course. Um, you know, we have an obligation as a wealthy country. We have an obligation given where we're situated surrounded by countries, um, low and middle-income countries. However, it's not that straightforward how best to tackle these problems. Um, in the early phase of the pandemic, there was an issue with vaccine availability. That's less of an issue now. Now the challenge for many countries is vaccine rollout, getting your population to actually have the vaccines. And there, those, those issues are really challenging. Um, 
and uh, they still remain a very big issue for low and middle income countries where there's a you know a lot of vaccine hesitancy and misinformation. So I think there's lots we can do there on programming, which can be of great assistance to low and middle income countries. The issue with antivirals is a bit more complex because antivirals are expensive, and um, and the whole way that drugs are procured is a lot is different to vaccines, and the cost benefit analysis of vaccines is probably not as the, the antivirals is probably not as favourable as what it is for vaccines. Meaning that mm. you've got to pay a lot more money for the drugs to get a smaller benefit, and so therefore many many countries struggle with introducing, you know, interventions like that because they're weighing up, do we spend the money on antiviral drugs for COVID or antiviral drugs for HIV or TB or malaria or other issues that they're facing? Of course, yeah. We, we know that COVID's sort of come about when there's already been a, um, a mix of other diseases in the communities, particularly in those lower and, and middle-income countries. But I guess um, honing back into Victoria, um, we've just had a, a couple of announcements last week where we're permitted to take masks off on public transport. And overall, the, the public health messaging seems to be much more lax uh, than what it was. Do you think that the public health messaging has been sensible recently? I think it's completely appropriate. We have to manage public health interventions really carefully. It's no, we have to do public health interventions that impact people's lives when they have the greatest impact. So if you're doing them for very minimal impact, you'll lose engagement and capability to roll it out when you really need it. So infection numbers are low, we're heading into summer, we've got high vaccination rates, the risks and and, and our vaccines are really preventing disease, um, not transmission. So we, um, you know, now is the time that we can relax those measures. So actually mask ruling on trans, public transport is still strong in courage. It's just no longer mandated. And at the moment, the only place that masks are mandated are in healthcare facilities and aged care facilities. So I think it's entirely appropriate. I think, do think that that change is confusing for people because, you know, we're sort of putting the brakes on and then relaxing things. But you do need to relax things to ensure that you get really good compliance when you really need it. And I think it's important for people to know as optimistic as we are about COVID moving into another, we're moving into another era with COVID. There's no doubt about that where um, it's causing much less havoc and impact on our healthcare system. There's always the possibility that a new variant will drive different policies. So these might come back in the future, but at the moment not mandated. And the most important thing I think to be able to really be cognizant of is not to go to work if they have symptoms and to test if they've got symptoms. Mm, some good messaging there to move forwards. And I guess in the future, you know, public health has been changed um, quite significantly. What do you think are the future implications after COVID-19? Do you think there will much, uh, there'll be many things staying the same? Um, or do you think we'll be a return to pre-COVID times? Well, if I could just give two examples. I think the first is a real high awareness of the impact of respiratory illness and the need to stay home and get tested. We never were that vigilant with that with respect to influenza, for example. And those measures will have a big impact on influenza, which we have, you know, every single year and we have deaths from every single year. Um, on, and the second area that I hope 
and uh, will change is investment in public health. Um, we absolutely need a really good, highly functioning, data-driven, state-of-the-art public health system that can allow us to test, trace, isolate, not just for COVID, but for other infectious diseases in the future, to respond quickly with rolling out new diagnostics, therapeutics and vaccines. And that needs a level of preparedness. You can't you, to, to respond well, you've got to come off a, a very solid base of functional activity in public health. So I hope that COVID is not going to let, lead, not going to result in return to business as usual. Um, far more investment in preparedness and um, awareness of the importance of public health. Mm, it's uh, it's certainly created, I think, a, a renewed sense of appreciation for public health. And, yeah, let's hope that one continues. Well, Sharon, thanks so much for joining us today and I hope you enjoy the rest of your Wednesday. Great. Thanks a lot. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. So that was Professor Sharon Lewin uh, from the Doherty Institute there speaking on the future implications of COVID-19. Grace, how do you feel about hearing that announcement Um the other day oh that was really interesting um because i see we all can't wait for COVID to be end in sight and so i'm glad this is uh, good news going forward especially after a very long two years of the pandemic oh it's been an absolutely arduous two years hasn't it so i think there was um some really positive um comments made there by professor sharon lewin about how you know we can relax a little bit and we are moving into a a new era so take a breath and let's enjoy summer (laughs) yes kind of kind of can't wait for summer i'm so excited for it Ah, me too (laughs) well you're on 3cr breakfast um with jacob and grace we're gonna put on a track now and we'll be right back after this And brothers and colors can't stop us from loving each other. I was born in a world so cold, but that's life as we've all been told. But is it living when our food is in your kitchen and the only way to get it is in drugs? Get sold. I wasn't born with a silver spoon or a house that had five bedrooms. I was raised with a gummy sip goon to the rise of the sun and the fall of the moon. And this life seems oh so crazy. 16, nearly had my first baby. 17, selling dope from the house, putting tears in the eyes of the woman that made me. And this life seems oh so crazy. This life seems oh so cold. This life, my one day break. This life might take my soul. This life seems oh so crazy. This life seems oh so crazy. And this life seems oh so crazy. This life seems oh so cold. This life, my one day break. This life might take my soul. This life seems oh so crazy. This life seems oh so crazy. No justice, no peace, no voice, no speech. 
No point in even trying to speak unless you're showing ID to the pump police. They got us locked in chains. It all seems strange. So your brother goes in and he leaves insane. Things will never be the same until he ends the cycle of the system's game of victim's pain. In the ghetto, never said much, was a quiet little fellow. All sung low, cool, calm and mellow. Tattered on his arm was a red, black and yellow. Where he wears his pride. Deep inside, an intelligent mind, just lost in time. All I really had was a beat and a rhyme. And a mother that did anything to watch him shine. This life of mine ain't the one that I thought it would be. Popping them bottles and smoking that weed. Things don't always be what they seem. This world I see ain't gonna last too long. And I must be a fool to really think that I could have changed it all with a song, but still I try. This life seems oh so crazy. This life seems oh so cold. This life might one day break. This life might take my soul. This life seems oh so crazy. This life seems oh so crazy. This life seems oh so crazy. This life seems oh so cold. This life might one day break. This life might take my soul. This life seems oh so crazy. This life seems oh so crazy. You're listening to 3CR 855am, or maybe you're tuning in online at 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. I'm Jacob, and I'm joined today by Grace, and we just heard an interview with Professor Sharon Lewin from the Doherty Institute about the future implications um, of COVID-19. And that song we just played there was called This Life, um, featuring B-Moon and Kobe D. Turning the dial a bit now, we're going to be speaking on politics, our favourite topic. So for many progressive Australians, the victory of Labour, the Greens and the Teals in May was cause for cautious optimism. It seems perhaps there could be progress in areas such as climate, First Nations justice, education and welfare, to name a few. However, four months after their victory, there's been some striking similarities between Labour and the Liberal Party, namely on new coal and gas projects and Stage 3 tax cuts. Independent writer and political commentator Joel Jenkins recently wrote about this in their article entitled The Duopoly, and Joel joins us now. Joel, welcome to the program. Good morning, Jacob and Grace. How are you? I'm good, good. How are you? Yes, fairly well. I had a long weekend, so it was really nice. Yes. Still enjoying that. <laughs> Still um, on the come down from that, um, but really enjoyed uh, reading your recent article on the duopoly. So maybe you can start just by telling us what is the duopoly and how do you think it affects Australian democracy? Ah, well, the duopoly is something that's ever-present and all around us in this country. Um, we have our Coles and our Woolworths. We have our um, 3AW and our ABC, um, our Rio Tinto and um, BHP. Uh, it sort of goes across um, the whole breadth of our society where we have these sort of two choices. Um, and that also applies to our major parties that sort of stick there um, uh, and block out the sun with many of um, uh, yeah, many of our political um, 
sort of steps that we need to make as a country. So, yeah, I see it everywhere. Um, and I think most of us uh, sort of feel its limitations. And I think the duopoly stands for a limitation in many ways um, and a comfort in a power class. Mm. Um, so it affects Australian democracy by kind of numbing discourse. Um, it, it allows two major parties to hold, um, you know, a duopoly over our national discussion. Mm, and I, I think um, you make some really good points there. And from a progressive standpoint, Labor's been in government for about four months now. How do you think they've been performing? They've been... Um, you know, playing uh, playing their their cards. Um, their election promises were to deliver um, an ICAC, uh, which you know, hopefully, can be a point of difference. Um, you know, I'll pay that that you know Dreyfus yesterday seemed to indicate something that was um, a little bit better than what I was expecting, and maybe surprised a couple of the teals as well. Um, this is a point where they can um, they can probably make a difference, but. More so, I'm a little bit worried about, um, yes, the 114 coal and gas projects that they sat on the side of the house together for, um, the stage free tax cuts, Zoe Daniels, um, you know, uh, desire for a, a royal commission into Murdoch, which was um, knocked back as well. Um, there seems to be some sort of key um, policies that are, are kind of bipartisan all the way through. Um, and we got to see a little bit of this too with Labor kind of shoring the stocks at the, um, at the Minerals Resources, uh, council meeting, like the largest, um, mining lobby group in Australia, where essentially, you know, Albo told them that, um, that he had, they had nothing to worry about business as usual. Mm, I'm, I'm finding it really interesting observing this new government and how a lot of things that I think many Australians would consider sort of the bare minimum, um, there's, there seems to be a hesitancy around. Definitely. Um, you know, I think they've been scared um, from being, you know, a decade in opposition, um, sort of unable to dream a future um, on the back foot um, for a decade, and you know, not only on the back foot from um, you know a pretty belligerent um, uh, you know opponent in government, but also uh, having the entire concentrated um, commercial press apparatus um, going to town on them every single day as well. Um, so yeah, look, I mean, they might want to play the middle uh, the middle card, but um, all the support they get from uh, from meeting Lachlan Murdoch could evaporate as soon as they find a. Um, you know, a new far-right alternative that they can, um, a viable alternative that they can back. Um, and then all of a sudden that support could evaporate pretty quick. So, yes, they are playing um, a dangerous game and they're trying to play a broad stroke, but in the process they might be appealing to people that um, that aren't their core voting group historically um, and it could be causing trouble further down the track, um, you know, as far as losing left-voting left um, Labor people. Mm, and you touched on a number of issues um, in your article where there has been you know, a very thin or a non-existent degree of separation between the coalition and Labor. Um, we've mentioned a couple of them, but what do you think are some of the other big issues that hasn't really, you know, where Labor hasn't really made um, a point of distinction against the coalition? One that stood out for me a little bit was you know, it was an election, it was kind of like a, a feather in the cap, Labor thought, to 
act pretty strong on um, JobKeeper and JobSeeker there. You know, it was a, um, it was them going, we're just like the other mob. We've got no plans on, on increasing these rates. Um, and they saw it as a political kind of um, play to make that call. And, I mean, what that did right there was, you know, put um, marginalised Australians um, on the back burner. It's another um, major party um, putting them on the back burner. But, you know, I, I really have to go back to those 11 offshore gas licences that were signed off, uh, the urea dump that was made on Aboriginal sacred land where, you know, Tupacek was looking to move the, the carvings there to another location. Um, you know, we've got... We have a business as usual um, happening in the mining sector. We have a business as usual happening um, around these tax reforms. Um, and really the points of difference speak to, you know, essentially the ICAC as far as I'm concerned. And, you know, this is the crossroads. Um, oh, look, I'll give them one more. I, I really, do, I was impressed with, you know, initially with how Labor went out and met Joko Widodo there. That was a point of difference that I felt, um, you know, was a bit different. Um, and also Penny Wong's kind of diplomacy has been something I think that, um, you know, uh, credit where credit's due. Mm, no, I think Penny Wong's been um, great representation overseas. Um, but as you said before, a, a lot of these issues are really trying to have broad appeal. Um, and Labor is supposed to be the party of um, the workers, of the union. Um, but it's interesting to see it. It seems to have sort of shifted. So what would you say are, are Labor's values in 2022? And do you think this is the government that Labor voters wanted? Uh, I think we're at a stage where um, a lot of Labor voters wanted Labor in um, due to some kind of PTSD they were experiencing over a decade. Um, so, you know, there was a bit of a, um, uh expectation to, to get these get this party over the line, um, repudiation of the previous mob. Um, but to be honest, I think that there's a lot of... Um, working Labor voters like myself that come from the more traditional, safer seats, um, working seats that have sort of given their meal ticket vote to Labor since Federation, essentially. Um, mm. And right there, I feel there is a bit of a hemorrhaging in support um, uh, for Labor more generally. Um, and I think their values are, are a key reason for that. Um, you know, the stage three tax cut speaks to, to values. Um, the um, the way Chalmers is going um, forward uh, in this economic climate um, with these budgetary constraints, he's got $283 billion in the kicker right there he can use to, um, you know, fund a, a, a whole raft of programs um, that could help boost the cost of living. He's decided to, to draw a line in the sand. And not only that, he's, he's decided to put that onus on working poor Australians to, to wait to wait for a rate, a rate increase, um, to sort of wait f through these unknown periods of interest rate increases. Um, so, yeah, a wage increase is, um, is something in 2024 um, and uh, along with any other kind of economic um, salvation. So, yeah, it is um, the values have been drawn that they want to play a middle game. They want to work for the Business Council of Australia with the Business Council of Australia to, um, you know, work on pragmatic middle-of-the-road um, policies but unfortunately, there's a whole um, a whole swathe of our population that that really need a chop out from this new Labor government. 
Mm. And one perspective on this, I suppose, that I've been hearing is that this bipartisan agreement or these these middle-of-the-road policies um, are a sign of, of good governance. Um, so what are your thoughts? Do you think bipartisan agreement is considered a sign of good governance or is it sort of a, a diminishing of democracy? I mean, how do we feel, Grace and Jacob? I mean, what part of uh, teal waved don't they get? Um, <laughs> you know, this is the... That's, um, that's something my friend will always say, you know, it's kind of, um, this is where we're at. We're at a crossroads in political history here, and Elbow can't walk out um, governing like it's 1992 and, and looking for a broad stroke here. This is, um, you know, this is a, a crossroads in our, uh, in our economic and political kind of um, status quo, you know, where we have to make some massive decisions with regards to how we're going to look strategically into the region, uh, how we're going to secure our own domestic economy, all these sort of things. And I think bipartisan agreements great when you have a healthy um, consensus-driven uh, um, political sphere. But really, we're, we're, we've been looking from Tony Abbott through to Dutton at some of the most, you know, bad faith, belligerent opposition blokes that you've ever seen um, in, in modern politics. So, I mean, I think the duopoly work. Uh, sorry, the uh, bipartisan works when. Uh, when you've got good faith on both sides. And if Peter Dutton's supporting something, I don't know if, uh, if, if bipartisan uh, is the way to go, right? <laughs> mm, yeah, that's um, certainly an agreement we probably share here over at 3CR Radical Radio. Uh, <laughs> but we, we know from the election that support for the minor parties um, has reached a record high what do you think this trend has to say about the state of affairs, and do you think it's likely to continue? Most definitely. Um, you know, uh, we all got a bit of a sense uh, of what what can be possible under these teals. Um, you know, so much so that I, I was a political person without a country, so much that I was out there in Kuyong moping around. I had no idea what I was doing out there, but I was helping out as much as I could to sort of, um, mm. and just to sort of, um, to see the lay of the land and see how this electorate was invigorated by, um, by this movement. And, and it surely was. Um, and, and I think the danger that the major parties don't understand is the power of these grassroots movements and what they can inject into the electorate and how they think about the world around them. So, you know, I'm really looking forward to uh, the chance to maybe open up um, some ideas in these working north seats to look at how independence could work there. Um, so the, the evaporative um, support for the minor parties will swing towards Labor over in, into the next election if they can't... Um, if they can't appease and work towards securing, um, you know, a pretty desperate voting block that's um, struggling a fair bit economically um, and feels politically kind of left behind in a bit of a wilderness. So yes, um, you know, uh, there is going to be uh, there is going to be a trend towards more independence, towards minor parties. Um, especially if we're getting lackluster policy around um, coal and gas, and um, and you know. Tax cuts for the rich. Mm. Um, so yeah, yeah, you know, expect this to continue, and and um, yeah, expect a few people popping up over the next months and years. Um, you know, sort of drawing a bit of a line in the sand, I reckon. Yeah, yeah, and um, we've got a um, a state election here in Victoria in a few months as well. Do you think perhaps that trend might transpire um, in the upcoming election? 
Uh, most definitely. Like uh, Coast Samaras, uh, who's a you know a good, uh, really good sort of electoral analysis and worked in and around the Labor Party for a long time. He's observing at the moment a phenomenon that's happening out there in, in the electoral boundaries, and you know essentially the Maroonda Hospital deal and and and, and, and the reason for the naming and appeasing the, the monarchists in the electorate. Um, you know that speaks to a little bit more how the Andrews government is actually expecting uh, quite a few of its votes from Melbourne's east. Which it hasn't done traditionally, and in and and replacing um, a, a whole bunch of votes they're losing out in the west. So the the, the you know out Truganina, um, uh, Melton, these kind of areas out here are, are evaporating support for the Labor Party. In in you know it's a it's a social phenomenon that's happening underneath the surface there, um, and this, is, this speaks to a whole other issue that these people are are going off and 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 voting for. Um, groups and parties that are, you know, that aren't really, um, that aren't really driving for much else other than, uh, you know, some kind of um, disruption. So I mean, you know, we're looking at people that are disenfranchised, that that, that are leaving major parties and going into, you know, um, the wilderness. So you know, it'd be a shame uh, for for those people to be left behind um, by, firstly, their major party and by, you know. Um, you know, any independents or, 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 or grassroots groups that could perhaps capture them from falling off the, uh, the spectrum. Mm, disruption and uh, disenfranchisement and maybe a little bit of rage too seems to be an ongoing theme uh, this in recent political history. Uh, well, well, I think we'll have to wrap it up there, Joel, but thank you so much for coming on today. It's been really fascinating hearing all of your insights. I appreciate it so much, Jacob and Grace, and thank you so much for having me on. It's just, um, it means a lot. So, yeah, cheers. No worries. Always a pleasure. And that was Joel Jenkins there speaking about Labour and Liberal duopolies and, I guess, the current state of um, political affairs. What do you think, Grace? It's a very interesting topic. Um not gonna lie, he did cut me off guard. Joel did cut me off guard when he was asking about, um, well, what do I think about the bipartisan support? I mean, agreement and whether is it of good governance or weak democracy? Well, I have not much to say on that, but I guess, um, let's hope it's actually good for the country and, um, we, and it's good in terms of the public support and, and it's good for the public. Mm-hmm. I think I, yeah, I really resonated with what was said by Joel about when it's done in good faith. Yes, yeah. but you know, anything that Peter Dutton is supporting, more often than not, um, yeah, I don't really agree with. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, well, you're listening uh, to Three CR Breakfast. We just spoke with Joel Jenkins, and if you want to um, follow them. On Twitter, uh, the handle is Bogan Intel. We'll pop that in our show notes. They've also got a blog as well where they do some really interesting write-ups. Um, they just wrote an article about King Charles and the monarchy too. So check it out. Um, we'll pop the link in our show notes as per usual. We're going to jump to a quick song now, but we'll be right back in a couple of minutes. Fingers rustled the branches, old I came calling. 
Welcome back, and you're listening to Tracy at Breakfast. That was So I've Crossed the River by Beth Kings and Hemingway Collective. Now we're moving on to our final part of our show. Um, this week is focusing on disrupting arms fair, as this is also um, heading on to this armament week. So Australia is being groomed into becoming a weapons manufacturer, and the major parties are complicit in this. Companies are lobbying off the government to develop their manufacturing capabilities, and there are being there are contracts being signed for this. I spoke to Michelle Fahi, an investigative writer on Australia's armed weapons industry and their close connections with the government. 
And we were also discussing about the militarization in the country and the blanket secrecy that Australia has that was for the purpose of national security. And we also dwell a bit more on anti-corruption measures as there was a bill introduced on anti-corruption just yesterday. So that was something that we've mentioned and talked about as well. So uh, hi, Michelle, how are you? Hi, hi, Grace. I'm well, thank you. Um, so I just want to um, ask you about uh, just to have a brief explanation to our new listeners on like militarization in Australia and what's their connection with the government. Oh, okay. So it's a very big topic. Um, the arms industry internationally, when people talk about it like that, they mean um, major arms that are being sold between governments and basically the weapons that are used in warfare. So um, anything from, you know, huge ships uh, for, the, for the Navy, um, strike fighter jets, um, tanks, um, of course, missiles, um, rifles, such and such. So all the weapons used in warfare. And um, because it's a secret business and also and highly classified, much of the business gets done government to government, but also the arms manufacturing companies themselves are highly involved because they're always at the forefront trying to invent and manufacture new weaponry with new capabilities. So so it's, that sort of gives you a feel for what we're talking about. And um, this thing about government to government and then also um, the problem of like the, the global arms trade that is uh, happening, how is this leading to the corruption happening here right now? Well, there's a few factors that contribute. So for starters, uh, it's important to say that the arms industry is well known for being one of the most corrupt on the planet. So uh, even though in terms of its dollars compared to lots of other um, global industries, it's actually relatively one of the smaller ones, but the amount of corruption involved is um, quite high. So um, that's because of the secrecy generally. So things, uh, governments will claim national security and so they don't provide details. Now, some of the time, of course, that's legitimate. Uh, a lot of the time it's a very convenient excuse for not being transparent about what's happening. The other thing that makes it known for corruption is the arms deals are usually very large and there's only a certain number of them every year. Uh, so, you know, when you're talking billions of dollars or hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, there's not that many deals around, but there's quite a large number of companies competing for them. So with that, with the secrecy, um, with the fact that the, each deal is very complicated or it can be like... Um, things get adjusted to suit a country's purposes. So it's very easy for bribes and covert payments to be, you know, mixed in without it being discovered. So um, that's what um, contributes to the corruption in this industry. And um, can you just um, try to elaborate more on, like, how is this gaining, allowing the, uh, allowing the, um, the politics to gain power? Politicians, you mean, or...? Ah, yes, sorry, politicians. Okay. Um, 
One of the one of the facilitators of the corruption, and um, as I was saying before, there's not that many deals and they're very large in value. So what that necessarily means from the political side is that there's only usually a handful of people involved in making the decision. So you'll have on very big um, arms deals like the, you know, tens of billions of dollars on warships or submarines or something, the Prime Minister is going to be involved in that. So you'll it's a very select group of very senior people. Um, and so that's another contributing factor to it globally in um, corruption in arms deals because of that, because um, of the power at, at, that's in place um, and the people involved and the large sums of money. Did that answer your question? <laughs> yes, it did. Thank you so much. Yeah. And so you, and then after that, you mentioned about this um, blanket secrecy, and, and this is something that uh, the government is hiding, and uh, they don't. I, I would say they won't exactly um, reveal the reveal everything of to the full knowledge of the public. So, um, can you elaborate more on what it exactly is? Yes. Uh... Particularly in Australia, I have to say, we're quite uh, known here. Uh, the level of secrecy here is very uh, high. So say, for example, uh, we export um, weapons and things overseas. We, no, we can't find out what uh, is being exported specifically, how much, where to. Uh, in order to find anything out, I would have to do freedom of information requests and then we get very, very basic information. So it'll say, um, you know, going to Israel or Saudi Arabia or this, you know, we approved whatever, 10 permits in the last three months or something. Um, so it's not precise information either. The government will only tell us how many permits it has approved to make export that doesn't necessarily mean those exports actually happened. We don't know how many weapons were involved. It could have been one, one um, item or it could be thousands. Uh, in some cases, it could have gone to multiple different destinations. So um, the level of secrecy is, is very high here. Also, one thing that we don't know in Australia, which, say, in the UK they do, um, is that ministerial meetings with arms industry executives, for example, in the UK that the ministers need to show their, have open diaries to show how much interaction they're having with the industry. There's none of that here. And if this level of secrecy is, um, they deem it as the way to protect national security, but then Australia's commitment to corruption is decreasing. And then like you've mentioned um, before, uh, that the government is a, a they're, uh, introducing a bill on anti-corruption measures, but how? But that is um, that's not exactly connecting. So what's what's going to happen with this? All right. So there's a few things to talk about there. Um, Australia's uh, anti-corruption. We, we've been going down. There are international measures for anti-corruption measures that countries can put in place to ensure corruption's not happening. So in Australia, we um, had our worst ever score on a global anti-corruption um, measure in, in um, this year, actually. So we used to be quite high um, 
inside the top 10 of countries with 85 points. That was a decade ago. Now we've plummeted out to 18th place. So we're going in the wrong direction. <laughs> uh, so it used to be, you know, we had transparency, accountability and a lot more measures in place, anti-corruption measures. And, and so the secrecy has gotten uh, stronger here. There's a few other things I've said in my recent article about this at Arena magazine, which explains those out. In the parliament, uh, we are having introduced, um, the anti-corruption commission legislation that our uh, new crossbench, the independents, uh, very, and uh, many others have been standing for for a long time. So it'd be interesting to see, hopefully, that it is a strong, uh, what the government's introduced is close to what Helen Haynes, the independent, um, proposed, um, because that was a good, strong piece of legislation so that we get a good, strong anti-corruption commission. Would you like me to talk a bit more about the commission? Um, yep, if, if you could explain a bit more on this. Yeah. yeah. So um, what we have, uh, as some of your listeners might know, the states have anti-corruption commissions, but we don't have a federal one. And it's really important. 88% in a recent poll, something like 88% of Australians want one. It was one of the key measures on which the new government got elected because basically the public's fed up with the corruption federally. <laughs> so, um, and in my sphere, it's absolutely essential because as, as we've been talking about, the, um, arms industry is well known for corruption. Australia is a very significant buyer of weaponry. At this point in time, we're spending $270 billion over and above the normal uh, defence budget purely on buying weaponry. Um, and given the level of corruption in this industry, I think we'd be quite naive to think that things aren't going on here. Um, we've got all the same companies operating here, the big multinationals that are known to have done engaged in corruption elsewhere in the world. So it's very important for Australia that we transparency and accountability that we get um federal legislation in place, a federal body that can investigate corruption. I see. But then right now there are companies that are actually putting in contracts and the governments are the government is taking this contract without the without the public's full knowledge. So if and when this is actually the case right now, how 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 would this anti corruption bill um help to stop that and how to like prevent these kind of measures? Well, there's uh, two things to say to that. The first thing is um, what's very important in the arms industry, because the deals, as I was saying earlier, are at a high level um, uh, in both the companies and governments, um, there are anti-corruption measures you can put in place like international standards and that protect processes through a company. We need to do that as well. So that'll stop people down the chain in a company who might cut corners and just do dodgy deals to get smaller deals through. For the bigger ones, really probably the only way you'd ever find out about something like that is from a whistleblower. So 
part of this anti-corruption um, regime that might be coming in, it's going to have really strong and needs to have and it must have very strong whistleblower protections because if we want people to come forward and risk their careers on blowing the whistle on corruption in the defence sector, um, they need to be protected. So um, that would be a very significant way here. Well, if we have that, if we have strong whistleblower protections and we have a commission with teeth that can investigate third parties, not just politicians, um, it needs to be able to investigate the other side if people are trying to bribe politicians. So all of this was in Helen Haynes's original uh, bill. So if that's all still in there, that would be, uh, it'd be the best result we can get then to help um, investigate and um, look into corruption in this industry in Australia. And will this be able to also help, um, I would say, widen the, the widen the connection of the between the weapons industry and the Australian government? Um, I'm not sure what you mean by what. I mean, some things are going to get kept secret. I mean, that's a, just a factor in this industry. Things get called national security. They're not necessarily. I mean, the media has to play a role there by asking more questions. Um, our media doesn't tend to investigate things as closely or with as much gusto as I think they ought to. Um, so, you know, uh, the, so it's not, it's not like the having a federal anti-corruption commission is going to fix everything, but, um, it is certainly, it's going to be, uh, it'll put the industry, not just the arms industry either, of course, but that's my thing that I focus on, but, um, it'll put people on notice to have that sort of thing in place. Um, and also part of Helen Haynes's bill, now you mentioned that, was actually about um, educating the public and educating politicians about integrity, about corruption, actually undertaking research on corruption and the extent of it in Australia. So if all those good measures still remain in this new bill, I'll be really delighted to see that sort of thing because it'll help open things up a lot more for the public. Yeah. How is this going to help the public and how is and and what what the what what should the public really know? I can probably I can flesh this out a little more so I can give you some examples. Um what happens with the blanket secrecy here and the fact that we haven't got an uh, anti-corruption commission federally is that there are a lot of what's called red flags. So there's warning signs um that happen. Due to the research that's been done internationally, they're called red flags because they're, beha- they're behaviours that internationally in other instances have been shown to have led to corruption. But because we don't have the ability currently in Australia to investigate that federally, they're just red flags and they just stay there and nothing happens. So that's things like um, on a couple of big arms deals. In this article I mentioned that I did with Arena Magazine, I give some examples of them. Um, uh, there was a warsh- some warship contracts where actually there were whistleblowers internally in defence and um, there was overpayment of invoices. There were complaints internally. Uh, so, you know, there's some very serious accusations that made it into the press, um, but nothing, it just gets swept away. We never find out. So that, that would be something where I would think an example like that, uh, which was with 
BAE Systems, the warships, and also Tullez, another two big multinationals. That was in the Australian newspaper a couple of years ago. And um, people blew the whistle internally on that. But what happened, so say something like that, if we have a federal uh, anti-corruption commission, um, it could get referred to them to investigate properly. What happened now? Well, Defence conducted an internal investigation it appointed its own, someone who was already a contractor to defence to conduct the investigation. It didn't tell anyone in the public it was happening. And when the report came out, it was kept secret. And when I asked them some questions about it uh, a year or so to say, well, what happened? It was like, oh, it was nothing. You know, it was a minor administrative issue. <laughs> so, so this is when there's been whistleblowers. It's gone to the top of the chain of defence fraud and everything, but they were saying, no, no, minor administrative issue. So, so that's an example of a red flag. And then obviously all this is um, the public doesn't know too much about it. And then at the same time, the taxpayers' money are being used to, I would say, Absolutely. contribute, contribute yes. to the, um, the trades and like um, allowing these companies to uh, do what they what they what they're meant to do. Yes, and uh, the ta- um, really the taxpayer, we are spending billions and billions, hundreds of billions of taxpayers' money. And as you and all your listeners would know, there's plenty of things we could be spending that money on um, and not waste, you know, having budgets continually blow out. And so so the public has a right to know these things. Um, but currently a lot of it just gets treated with these bland answers going, oh, it was nothing, it was an administrative issue, and that's the best we can expect So at the moment. So um, I'm really hoping the situation turns around. And um, I, yeah, just just to wrap this up, I think uh, I'll yeah. have a final question on this. And um, what's gonna be the future? What's gonna be the future of this for the public? And also, and is the militarization in Australia will it will it hopefully get better? I would hope so. I don't know. I mean, it's a very powerful, secretive industry. Um, it's all wrapped up in notions of state power as well as massive profits and all this. So um, who knows what the future might be. Um, The other disturbing thing about the industry, of course, which doesn't get, and I haven't mentioned yet, but and it doesn't get mentioned very often, but in order for these companies to keep making sales and have a business, there needs to be warfare because, you know, the weapons really need to be used. Um, they can be upgraded and they are constantly, but in the end, so you need large scale warfare in order for, you know, to keep, uh, the industry ticking over. So basically, um, the more power, the larger the industry gets, uh, the less, the less regulated in terms of preventing corruption, you know, it heads down a, it heads down a kind of dark path that we really don't want to go down. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. And obviously, um, warfare isn't something that's gonna end very soon. It's globally. And mm. of course, um, Australia is also in a way contributing to that. Mm. All right. Um, thank you so much, Michelle, for your time. Um, okay. You're welcome. Thank you. That was me speaking to Michelle Fahi, an investigative writer on Australia's armed weapon industry and its close connections with the government. We also discussed on militarization and the anti-corruption measures on the industry. 
You can read more on Michelle's article titled Hot Wired for Corruption at Arena's Magazine, which is arena.org.au. And you can also follow her via Twitter at F-A-H-Y Michelle. Such an important uh, topic, and that one comes this week with our militarization special here on 3CR Breakfast. Um, you can tune in every day at 8am um, for a new topic on militarization. And that brings us to the end of our show. Thanks for tuning in. And up next is Stick Together. 3CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings. Cards that connect, care, and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.